thank you for having me here. It's good to see you guys this afternoon. One of uh, the other things that I do is a ministry called The Catholic Hack, and you can be found at catholichack.com. And uh, I produce a lot of new media evangelization products like videocasts and podcasts. I write articles. I give talks. You know, I, I speak to people one-on-one. -on -one. I do a lot of different things, men's ministry in particular. And I've got a motto on my website. It goes like this, that it is my desire and goal to be the donkey upon which Jesus rides today. The reason why I talk about that is because in the book of Judges, there was a strong man who had a, a long set of hair, right? He had a big mane on him. And that was his strength. That's where he, he got all of his out-of-this-world kind of strength. And he was able to slay the Philistines by the thousands with the jawbone of a donkey, the jawbone of a jackass. And so the saying goes that if this man could slay thousands with just the jawbone of a jackass, imagine what he will accomplish when he uses the whole jackass like me. You see, I have no doctorate in Bible study, applied biblical theology. I don't speak Greek or Hebrew. I am simply a baptized and confirmed Catholic. And by default, I'm an evangelist. How many of you think you're going to grow up to be lawyers, doctors, engineers, salesmen. I'm here to tell you none of that is true. You will be evangelists who happen to be lawyers, doctors, salesmen, engineers, fathers, husbands, uncles, godparents. God has called you to evangelization first and foremost. That's why I'm here. That's why I call myself the Catholic hack. Archbishop Fulton Sheen, hopefully soon to be blessed, once said that you cannot wait until you have it all figured out before you decide to start sharing the good news. If you wait until you have it all figured out, you know every single verse in that Bible, you know every paragraph of that catechism, then it'll be too late because you'll be dead and then you'll be in heaven, hopefully, prayerfully. So you can't wait. You start today. You got to be a Catholic hacker just like me. A passionate, baptized, confirmed Catholic. The Catechism of the Catholic Church talks about this, about your, your being confirmed in paragraph 1288. It actually says that your confirmation perpetuates Pentecost, perpetuates the graces of Pentecost. What happened at Pentecost? We think of the speaking in tongues. We think of the, the rushing sound that gathered everybody together from the four corners of the earth. The book is quite explicit on this. And what does Peter do? He goes out and he preaches. And how many were saved that day? 3,000. This recalls us to Mount Sinai when Moses led the people in the wilderness by the pillar of fire by day and the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, God's theophonic presence leading them into the wilderness to Mount Sinai. And when they worship the golden calf, how many did the Levites slay? 3,000. That's a coincidence. Did you know that Pentecost is a celebration of the receiving of the law in the Jewish people? So they were celebrating Pentecost, celebrating the very Sinai moment when they received God's word in stone. 
when Peter comes out with tongues of fire preaching to all the world in every tongue that every man from the four corners of the earth could hear and understand. And 3,000 are saved that day. It's a photo negative of Sinai. 3,000 are slayed, 3,000 are saved. You think that's a coincidence? Not at all. Because this is the new Pentecost. And instead of shredding our ranks, ranks, we're increasing them by welcoming in the entire world from the four corners of the universe. Adam and Eve is the first couple. Noah is the first family. Abraham's the first chieftain of a tribe. Moses is the first president, if you will, of a nation. King David is the first king of the kingdom. Jesus is the emperor of all the universe. You see how every stage of salvation history, it only gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And now with Christ, our King, our Sovereign Lord, we are to welcome who? The entire world. Now, how do you do that? That's the real question. Just today, in today's readings at Mass, this morning, I, I caught an early Mass. We, the first reading was from 1 Peter chapter 3. I'll read verses 13 through 17. It says, quote, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is right? But even if you do suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled by, but in your hearts reverence Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and reverence and keep your conscience clear so that when you are abused, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing right, if that should be God's will, than for doing wrong. Do you remember who here watched the movie The Passion of the Christ? Remember that scene where Jesus is standing before Caiaphas, the high priest, and he responds to the charges that the, the Caiaphas begged him, or ordered him rather, to, to respond. How do you respond to their charges? And he starts to, to respond, and then that guard comes over and punches him. Remember what the character Jesus said to him? What evil have I done? What have I said that was wrong? And if I did no wrong, and I've done no evil, then why do you treat me this way? That's Jesus living out what we were just told by St. Peter. That our witness and our behavior is number one, our tool, in the, in the toolbox of evangelization. Let me tell you a quick story of how I learned the hard way this important lesson. For some reason, after my conversion, I had a hard time reading that verse, because when I read it, it sounded something more like, Always be ready to take the Bible and bash it over someone's head because they don't believe in what you believe in or they get it wrong and you got it right. Always be ready to cram your faith down someone's throat until they understand by oppression that you're right and they're wrong. Let me tell you something, that never worked. Every time I tried it, it always backlashed. The one that it backlashed the most was on my family, my very father. You see, I grew up in the Church of Christ in San Antonio, but in my late teens, because of my indoctrination into pornography at a very, very young age, thanks to my father, I fell away. I stopped attending uh, Sunday school and, and church, and I became thoroughly hedonistic. I wanted the ways of the world. I desired the ways of flesh. 
So I joined the Marine Corps at 17, went off, served a tour, tried to up my father in every single one of his exploits. I tried to better him every, every which way but lose. Fast forward, I get married. The first day and the first time I set eyes on my wife, I actually thanked God because I knew I wanted to marry her. I wasn't praying, but that day, for whatever reason, I was motivated to thank God for this woman. She was Catholic. She was nominally Catholic, but she was Catholic. She said, well, if we're going to get married, well, you've got to become Catholic. Huh, well, my grandparents will probably disown me, but oh well, I don't care. I want to get married. All roads lead to heaven, right? So I went through RCIA. I didn't care. didn't matter. I just simply wanted to get married. I remember sitting in RCIA one night, and they were reading the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. And I remember just sitting there thinking and listening to them read these Beatitudes. And it struck me so strange and so clear that this is true. That the people who tried to live these Beatitudes, they're sincerely holy people. And I could see for very clearly that that's how you should live your life. And if you hope to see God someday in heaven, that you had better live this way. It was so clear to me. I was so honest about it. But then the very next thought was, holy cow, it's a good thing I'm going to live a nice long life because I'm not living this now. And I know exactly what I will do as soon as I leave this building when I go home and get on my computer and watch the movies that I was watching. How naive of me to think that I would live long enough for conversion. Because I was not converted by it. I simply was honest about it. Fast forward again. I get married. Receive all my sacraments in 1999 at the cathedral in New Hampshire. I get married a year later. We're living together. We had already been living together, by the way. I lose my job in 2002. My wife and I were at each other's throat constantly, and she wanted a divorce. So in the spring of 2002, I turned to the one person who I was sure would not be there for me, because I had never been there for him. I had nowhere to go, though. I had no hope. I wasn't bringing home love and respect and dignity to my wife, and now I wasn't even bringing home a paycheck. So she really had enough, enough of what I was bringing. I got on my knees, and I had one of those cliche, let go and let God experiences. I said to God, God, I cannot do this. You have to do it. And you know what surprised me the most about that? I didn't truly and honestly expect him to be there. But he was. He showed up in that moment. He allowed me to understand some things mystically that I would have never in a million years began to even talk about or think about the very moment before that. For instance, my need for sexual integrity, my deep need to ensure my own purity, let alone the purity of my spouse, let alone the purity of my future children, and all of those around me who are in my care and custody. He also gave me this deep desire to salvage my marriage, to sacrifice for my marriage, to not only fix it, but to make it successful. Because I gave my word at the altar that I would do just that, 
He reminded me of it in that one moment of time. And now when I got up off my knees, I knew that I had to do everything to convince my wife to stay. And no matter what she did, felt, or saw, that I, if I had to take a beating, would have to do it. Because I was called as the man and the husband to fix that marriage. One of the other things that he gave me was this deep hunger, this desire to know him. Let me tell you, the day before I spent all of my free time driving in my work truck, listening to Howard Stern and all those other shock jocks, just wallowing in the lust of their appetites, allowing my imagination to run wild, the very next day, if they weren't preaching the gospel on the radio like a lunatic, I would be screaming at my radio. And people were like, what is that dude's problem? I didn't know anything about God. I grew up in Sunday school, but it was clear I knew nothing. But I had to know him. I had to know this man who showed up at my worst point in life. And so I was set on this journey. And yeah, I was Catholic. And so I started going to Mass every weekend. I mean, I didn't know anything. I didn't believe in anything. I just knew I had to go. Problem with that was my neighbor was a fallen away Catholic. Oh, he was Catholic 30 years. Oh, Joe, I've been there. I know everything about the Catholic Church. You Catholics worship Mary. You Catholics, you believe in the cookie that you think it's the real presence of Christ. It's just a wafer, Joe. Catholics are going to go to hell. I started believing him. My family's not Catholic. So, I said to my wife, honey, I, we got to leave. We had to go find the real church. This is not it. I talked to my dad about it, and he sent me a book. It was a book of denominations. When this book showed up at my house, it was another epiphany all over again. It was a red, hardbound book. It was about that thick, about two and a half inches. And the very first time I laid eyes on it, it was like the Holy Spirit was speaking to my soul saying, what? is truth. Do you know where that's from? From Pilate. Did you know the oldest copy of the Gospel of John that we have in existence, that we know of, is a mere fragment. And it says, what is truth? How profound, how ironic that this world that we live in who wants to question truth and feed you the relative lie of you can live for yourself and what you think is true is true and what he thinks is true is true for him and it's all good. That's a lie from the devil himself. But the Holy Spirit made me look at this book and say, wait a second, how is it that there are hundreds if not thousands of people in this book who all claim to have the fullness of truth, who all claim to speak infallibly for Jesus and his church, and there's so many flavors? They all don't agree with one another. I got into a, a debate with one Protestant pastor who was arguing against another Protestant pastor over some Greek words. Both knew Greek. Something's not right. I didn't know anything, brothers in Christ, but it dawned on me so clear that there is a real problem. And let me tell you, it scared me to death. Why? Because I had no confidence in what I was doing. I, I was reading my Bible every day, but I felt like that eunuch in the book of Acts 
How can I know unless someone is there to teach me? And Philip, thankfully, by the Holy Spirit, was there to expound upon the suffering servant, to teach this eunuch from Ethiopia that Jesus is that Messiah spoken of in that scroll he was reading that day. I didn't have that. There was no one there to teach me. I was listening to Protestant radio, and they were telling me the Catholic Church was going to hell. I stopped reading my Bible. I was so scared, I stopped reading it. And I started to pray to the Holy Spirit. Lead me to the truth. I only want to be in the truth. I don't care if it's Buddha, Muhammad, Mecca, you name it, uh, Utah. I don't care. I just want to be in the truth. Lead me to the truth. I am an ignorant jackass, Lord. Please lead me. And you know what he did? He introduced me to the early church fathers. Again, I don't know nothing. But I come across the early writings of the Christian faith. And because I, of all what I heard on Protestant radio, oh, Constantine is the one who introduced all of this pagan practice into the faith. It was Constantine who created the, the, the popes. It was Constantine who brought about the, the worship of the sun god's mommy. I mean, it, they brought all of this in, right? Constantine's around 300 AD. So you know what I said? I said, all right, fine, deal. This is what I'll do. I'll go back and study everything I can find all of the earliest Christian writings from the time of Christ outside of the Bible till about 300 AD, right before all of that filth entered into the church. That's what I'll do. And whatever I find there, I'll use that to go find the true church today. I found a document, Didache, the, the teaching of the apostles. This document was written in the first century during some of the lives of the actual apostles. They found so many copies of this document that they speculate that it was used to teach people how to read and write. That they had to co they copied it so many times that this was a, a tool to teach catechumens how to read and write. You know what this document says? First century AD. It says you should go to confession before you go to mass. Now, my Protestant friend said, if you're going to be baptized, you have to be dunked. It's the only valid way. You know what this document says? It says it doesn't matter if you have running water, stagnant water, hot water, cold water, a lot of water, or little water. So long as you use water and you do it in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit three times, it's valid. Well, golly gee whiz, that's, that's not Protestant. Talks about worship on Sunday. Huh, my Seventh-day Adventist friends might have a problem with that. Okay, all right, that's just all luck, right? They're Catholic, but all right, let's move on. Surely there's more out there. St. Ignatius of Antioch, 107 AD, the bishop of his diocese had already undergone a persecution, and a new one was coming. The very emperor of Rome was in his hometown. So you know what this man did? You talk about champions for the faith. This man walked into the, the court of the emperor, and said, take me, leave my flock alone. Are you ready to do that for your friends? This man was. They arrested him. The emperor ordered him to be taken back to Rome to be fed to lions. This bishop was so famous for his Christ-like behavior that as he was journeying by boat all the way back to Rome, People got word. The, the, the word spread. And so people, as he was landing in new cities along the way, under guard, 
would come to visit him and meet him at the dock. We have historical accounts outside of this man's writings of them doing this. Polycarp, for instance. This man, St. Ignatius of Antioch, was trained by John the Apostle himself. This is one person removed from Christ's words. This is as close to the source as you're going to get. He wrote seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor, exhorting them on many, many things, giving him his, their, his last words and testament, exhorting them to maintain the faith and to spread it along to the rest of the world. You know what some of the things this man said? In his letter to the Smyrnans, he says, do nothing outside of your bishop. He says, where the bishop is, there is the Catholic church. <gasps> Catholic? 107 AD? Do you know what Catholic means? It comes from the Greek, on the whole. Kath halal, on the whole. Think about that. It means, where is the wholeness of the church? With the bishop. Think about that the next time the bishop does something you don't like. He might be a bad man, but he is the one ordained. He is the bishop set there by Christ. So where can you be in the wholeness of the church? With the bishop. St. Ignatius says the bishop's job is to ensure, he actually writes this, is to ensure that the Eucharist is done appropriately. 107 AD, confession before Mass. The Eucharist, Jesus Christ's true presence, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the sacrament, right there, plain as day, explicitly stated in the first century church. This blew me away. St. Justin the Martyr, 150 AD, a convert from, from the Greeks, he decided he wanted to help uh, end the persecutions on the Christians by writing a letter to the Roman Senate and to the emperor himself. You see, part of the problem was the Christians were being accused of being atheists. Why? Because they didn't worship Caesar as God or the emperor as God. The other thought problem was the rumors spreading around about what they did and didn't do in their worship service, their sacramentum according to Roman letters. Plenty the Younger wrote to Trajan, his boss, and talked about their worship, and he actually described it as sacramentum, sacrament giving an oath. First century church, second century church. St. Justin the Martyr says, all right, I know that you think that we eat our God. I know that you call us atheists. And I know that nobody knows what actually happens behind closed doors because we do not allow anybody who's not baptized in. So if that's why you're persecuting us, let me pull back the doors. Let me reveal to you what we do so that you will stop persecuting us. 150 AD. This is basically what he says in his letter to the emperor in the Senate. On the day of the sun, Sunday, the day the Lord rose, we all come together and there's a presider over the whole assembly. And the, uh, there is uh, initial prayers, there's initial blessings. Then there's the readings of the apostles, the memoirs of the apostles are read for as long as time permits. And then the presider gives an exhortation based on those writings. Some call that a homily. And then after that, there's the prayers of the faithful, where they pray for everyone, the government, each other, the sick. 
Okay, I know this is foreign. You've never heard of this stuff. You've probably never even seen this stuff done anywhere. But this is what they did in the early church. Then it says the gifts of ordinary bread and wine are brought to the presider. Again, very foreign stuff. And then it says the presider prays the prayers over them. And they become Eucharisted bread. And then they give that bread, the body, blood, soul, and divinity to those present. And then the deacons take them to all those who couldn't come. I've been to that service, by the way. I was there this morning at 7 o'clock. Did you guys go? You went to an ancient Christian mass. How does that feel to be a part of the ancient church? It should feel very affirming. It shouldn't give us arrogance or pride. It should affirm you in your faith that you are part of the Catholic church, the on the whole you are with your bishop. And by virtue of your baptism and your, your confirmation, you are now empowered. You are not empowered. You are obligated to go out and share your faith with all the world without fear, as 1 Peter chapter 3 states. So this is what I went through, and it became obvious to me. The last hinge pin I needed before I could fully give my heart over to Christ and his church was the Eucharist. Okay, I read all that early church stuff. But was Jesus being explicit? Was he being literal or was he being figurative in John chapter 6? Because that's the one chapter most Catholics will go to to say this is Jesus' uh, teaching on the Eucharist. Protestants will quote the same chapter and say Jesus says in that chapter that it is the flesh availeth nothing, that it is the spirit that gives life. See, they say, Jesus says the flesh is nothing, so the Eucharist is nothing. So I went through every single word in John chapter 6, and I looked it up in the original Greek. I am no Greek scholar. I am barely smart enough to know where to go look for it on the internet. But I looked up every word, and I did a research project. I wrote out, because usually one Greek word equals three or four English words. And I wrote them all out, every single one. I had page after page, John chapter 6. He used words like sarks. This Greek word means a dripping hunk of flesh. Yeah, right, that's very symbolic. It's not at all literal. He used the word to uh, trogos, to, to mean gnawing. Literally, he meant you, wish, you must gnaw my flesh. He's very clear. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will have no life within you and I will raise you up on the last day if you eat my flesh and drink my blood. Okay, well, what about all that the flesh is nothing and the Spirit gives everything stuff? He didn't say, my flesh is nothing. He says, the flesh, the ways of the world is nothing. Your flesh, ultimately, is nothing. It is His Spirit, His resurrected body that we consume. You know the prohibition on cannibalism in the Jewish culture comes from the book of Leviticus? That we can't consume any blood. And so today, the Jews will send rabbis to food manufacturers to verify that they didn't use any blood product in the making of certain foods. Then they can be called kosher. They still do it today. You know why that is? We can't consume that blood? Because the Bible says that the blood of an animal is its life. So if you eat the blood of an animal and that animal is dead, 
you've basically brought death into yourself. What if you drink the blood of the living God? What will that do to you? It gives you life. See, see how he subtly undoes, undoes rather what, what the Jews were thinking in their brains, but yet they still couldn't come to grasp of this. So they ran away. They, they turned on him and they left him. And he didn't call them back and say, wait, 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 wait. I was, I was joking. It was just misunderstanding. I meant it symbolically. We're going to have a cookie. It's going to be good. Never. He lets him go. Turns to Peter and the apostles. Will you two leave? Peter says, like Columbo, uh, Lord, uh, this is a hard saying, but who else has the words of eternal life? So in other words, like Peter, I didn't fully grasp the Catholic teaching. I didn't fully understand everything. But who else was I going to go to that would have the answers? And so at that point, when I came to the realization of how literal he was being, I gave my heart to Christ. And I said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. So I struggled with Mary. I struggled with the communion of the saints. I struggled with the Pope and other stuff. But I was prepared to be trained by Christ and his church because I believed him to be telling the truth and I simply acknowledged that I didn't know what I was talking about. I remember getting on the phone that very day. I finished that study on John 6 and I got on the phone with my father and said, Dad, you wouldn't believe this. The church is biblical. He, there's long silence. What are you talking about? The church is not biblical. It's the whore of Babylon. That kicked off a bloody battle. My dad and I were exchanging blows. I had vengeance in my heart. I was going to show him. I was going to pull out all of the apologetic stuff I'd been studying, and I was just going to convert him. He would be my first convert, my first victory. Needless to say, that never worked. I remember my dad sending me this last letter, and it was like, Oh, it was ugly. It was one thing after another, just this mean, ugly tone. The darkness in our conversation was very apparent. And I responded in like kind. I wrote a 30-page letter in response to my father. I was going to browbeat him with the gospel up one side and down another. He was going to think that a Baptist came, became Catholic, and, and it took the field. At the end of writing that letter, the Holy Spirit allowed me to see that my heart was dark that I wasn't acting like Christ. I wasn't communicating the faith. I was allowing my passion and my ignorance to, to really take control of the conversation. So I talked to my pastor. My pastor said, Joe, what kind of relationship would you like with your father? Because i got to be honest, this one doesn't sound very good. I never sent that letter to my dad. Instead, I wrote him a one-page letter. And I said, Dad, I love you. I said, Dad, I'm sorry for, for arguing with you like this. And I hope that we can mend this relationship. It took a long time. You see, every time we got together, the one thing we loved the most, we could never even talk about, Jesus Christ. Oh, how's the weather, Dad? I don't know. Golf is good, though. Yeah, politics, golf, weather. That's about the scope of our conversation for a couple of years. I'm not a good golfer. I don't care about the weather. And politics is getting me more and more upset. So, golly gee whiz, we just sort of stare at each other for a while. Until one day, you see, this is when the Holy Spirit taught me this valuable lesson. You can convert no one. 
cure the donkey. I'm the Lord riding you. My only goal now is simply to be used. Simply to be used. I don't, I'm not out to convert anybody. But I am prepared to be the witness if God gives me that opportunity, 1 Peter 3.15. And I have lots of opportunities. So do you. So, I was asked in 2008 to give my conversion testimony specifically on pornography, on how God saved me from pornography at a men's conference in Houston. Well, by that point, my father and I were able to talk a little bit. And I told my dad what I was going to do. And he said, can you record that? I would like to hear that. That made me nervous because he was the chief culprit in the story. <laughs> I'm like, okay, sure, Dad, no problem. So I give the talk, and it's, it's a short talk. It wasn't very good. I recorded it. I sent it to him. Days went by, and I'm just sweating bullets. Oh, this is going to start another bloody battle. This is going to be ugly. Oh, this is not going to be good. And then I got a letter from my dad, and it, it made me break down and cry. It was so beautiful. He said, it was like meeting you for the first time. He said, I've never supported you in what you've been doing in the Catholic evangelization. He said, but that will change from now on. He said, I will spend more time reviewing your stuff, listening to your material. And from that day on, my dad and I have had some phenomenal conversations. You see, my father had his own conversion. He's still not Catholic, but he's had his own conversion. And he is a sincere man of Christ. And so now when we talk about stuff, we're not talking past one another. We're talking to one another. And he's, he's actually curious. Well, what does the Catholic Church teach about this or that or this? And instead of me trying to beat him up, I'm just witnessing as to what the Catholic Church does or does not do. What he does with that material is his business and the Holy Spirit's business. It's not mine. We sow the seeds, the Holy Spirit reaps the harvest. This is what you need to do in your daily life. Your vocation is to be a college student right now as an evangelist. So you think you're here to study. That's not what God has in mind. God thinks you're here to convert them through his work and your witness. He sent you to be the witness on this campus. If you think someone else is going to come, like the pastor, maybe the director of evangelization somewhere on this, in the center, you're wrong. He sent you. You're his plan. If you think there's a plan B, you're mistaken. Your job is to be a good Catholic. So, number one, live your faith. Don't be ashamed of your faith. I know it's odd. You know, there is a, the devil likes to attack men and get them on all of these little issues that make us feel embarrassed. How about praying in front of other people? How about praying in front of women? How many men here prayed in front of women? Was it easy? Did you, is it natural to you? It's not. It wasn't for me. I was deathly scared to pray in front of my wife after my conversion experience. I would sw just start sweating and like, oh, what am I going to say? She's going to think I'm an idiot. Problem is, she already knew I was an idiot. So that didn't change much. You see how the, the devil wants to steal your glory as a man? You are the one called to lead. You are the one called to be that warrior for Christ. If you don't embrace that, engage that, 
in your daily life, like when you eat at the chow hall, do you pray before your meal? And, you know, don't be ashamed. I'm not saying get up and saying, thank you, Jesus, for the food, and make sure everybody sees you and hears you. No, it can be very subtle, very personal. But also, you're not ashamed of it. You're not afraid of it. You don't hide from it. I pray before every meal, no matter where I'm at. When I had my conversion, I was in business. And I would be on lots of business meetings. And all the salesmen who were taking me out to lunch would be like trying to relate to me on a level of flesh and worldly desire. And I would have to stop them. I'm sorry. I have to pray. And they would be like, <gasps> And I didn't want to make them uncomfortable. But I was not going to be somebody I was not called to be. And I'm a coward. I don't know about you, but I'm a coward. My inclination is to run in the fear of danger. And so how do you overcome that? By running towards the danger. In the Marine Corps, when I served in the Marine Corps, we were trained that if you're ambushed, you're immediately supposed to counterattack without thinking. Sounds crazy. I get it but it actually has a very good spiritual context. You see, if the enemy has ambushed you and they're firing upon you, if you don't get up, get online, and assault through that enemy with everything you have, overwhelming them with superior firepower and violence of action, then you're a dead man walking because they'll pick you off. So if you want to live, you counterattack with everything immediately without thinking. Tell me what the difference is in the spiritual life. When the devil's attacking you, he's showing you some image that you know you're not supposed to be watching. You're in, a, you're in a social situation where you know that this is not good. What should you do? Lie on the ground and play dead? Hope it passes? No, because your soul is dying. And your soul is what matters. When you die, if you're in a state of, of grace, you go to heaven. If you're not, and you've committed mortal sin, you send yourself to hell. It's that simple. It's not complex. God doesn't send anybody to hell. We send ourselves. When you're attacked, you overcome by counterattacking. You know how I fight lust and temptation? I pray Hail Mary. Immediately. The very instant of trouble, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you, and I remove myself from the situation even if it's a beautiful woman in the room, and I'm feeling like, oh, oh, oh my, I, I, I walk out. I'd rather save my soul. It's not her fault, it's mine. But I'd rather save my soul. What about rage? See, I, I, I'm one of those guys on the road that gets bent out of shape if you're cutting me off with no turn signal. Use your turn signal! So what do I do? Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. You know, I have to fight the urge to get vengeance. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So if you're like me, you're a knuckle dragger, you're the donkey, you're all of these low, you know, bottom feeder kind of things, then you have the cards stacked against you. So prayer is your life. So evangelization on campus. Live your faith. Don't be afraid of it. Never leave your faith at home. Never leave your faith in the dorm room. Never leave your faith in the sanctuary or only in this building. Be Catholic everywhere you go and in every classroom, every social situation, everything you do in life because that's how you are part of the wholeness of Christ. 
where Christ is, there is his kingdom. There is his church. There are his bishops. Don't be on the outside of that. Today in the gospel, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And if you do that, then the Father and I will come and we will take up residence in you. Don't be afraid of the faith. Live it. Now, the next aspect, and this is where I'll wrap up on. A friend of mine once told me that, you know, Joe, we're the one percenters. There's the, who's here has, has heard of the 80-20 rule? 20% of people do everything and 80% are apathetic. The same is true for the church, only my theory in working in this business is that it's not 80-20. It's 99-1. and one. You're the one percenters because you're sitting in this room. You should get a 1% patch like on your neck like the Hells Angels do. You know? I'm a one percenter. You're a 1% of the Catholic Church. Don't take pride in that. Let that affirm you. Everybody else has some degree of apathy. We all do. It's true. But you're the ones taking action because you're sitting here today. My friend said to me, Joe, it's one thing to want to be the evangelist. It's one thing to want to be or to actually be prepared for that encounter. I've been, I've been engaged in conversation. I was sitting in a subway once, reading my catechism while eating my lunch, paying attention to nobody but myself, and the guy washing the table, like, well, you Catholics, you think Mary went to heaven. No, 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 she's buried and dead. I'm like, okay, um, you want to have a seat and we can talk about it? I didn't go looking, they came to me. I was buying a coffee once at, at a gas station. Well, you Catholics, you think that there's communion of the saints. But when you die, your soul is asleep. Uh, okay, I just wanted the coffee, but we can talk about that. And so for like an hour, while he's trying to tend to customers, I'm trying to talk to him about, you know, the faith and showing him in where in Scripture we find communion of the saints and how Mary ascended into heaven, body, or, it was, or taken into heaven, body and soul. You see... You never know when you're going to be in these situations. To be prepared for that is what's important. So have that reason for your faith. If you don't know it for yourself, how are you ever going to communicate it to someone else? But also, this is also what I do. I have materials. I keep them on me. So if I'm not in the perfect situation where I can sit and really have a great conversation, it's more of like a, a hit-and-run kind of a deal where someone just sort of comes out of the blue, I say, here, take this, listen to this, and maybe next time we see each other we can talk about it. Have materials on you. I mean, this is the Lighthouse CD of the Month Club. So that's, I have these. I just give them out. I also produce material. I have a, a CD set on pornography. I give these out. God has put more men in my path on that one issue than anything else. I talk to men literally across the world on pornography addiction. I give those things out all the time. You know how many women will come to me? My husband, my son is, in, is into this. What do I do? Here, take my stuff. Call me. We'll talk. Pamphlets. You can download pamphlets off the Internet and just have them on you. Have them in your, in your book bag. Always be ready. Your professor your, your peers, 
I guarantee you, you've probably been in a class, in a discussion at class, where you were the only one in that class who believed one, one way, and everybody else believed the other way, and you felt all alone and scared to even bring it up. I did. When I had my conversion, I was going through college, and I was like, man, I feel obligated to say something, but holy cow, these people are going to kill me. It's nice to have just some material on you. Say, here, read that. It's very unassuming. Here, take that. Listen to it. Maybe we'll talk about it next time. It's one of the best ways to actually share your faith. Live your faith. Love your faith. Never be afraid to show your faith. And truly be ready for that moment where you will encounter someone else. Be ready with your witness. Be ready with material. Thank you so much.